Part 2, Section 19 of The Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy, Section 36. A hundred times in these days of her absence, Lennon had been on the point of going down against her orders just to pass the house, just to feel himself within reach, to catch a glimpse of her, perhaps from afar. If his body haunted London, his spirit had passed down onto that river where he had drifted once already, reconnoitering. A hundred times, by day in fancy and by night in dreams, pulling himself along by the bows, he stole down that dim backwater till the dark yews and the white dovecot came into view. For he thought now only of fulfillment. She was wasting cruelly away. Why should he leave her where she was? Leave her to the profane herself and all womanhood in the arms of a man she hated. And on that day of mid-June, when he received her telegram, it was as if he had been handed the key of paradise. Would she? Could she mean to come away with him that very night? He would prepare for that at all events. He had so often in his mind faced this crisis in his affairs, that now it only meant translating into action what had been carefully thought out. He packed, supplied himself liberally with money, and wrote a long letter to his guardian. It would hurt the old man, Gordy was over seventy now, but that could not be helped. He would not post it till he knew for certain. After telling how it had all come about, he went on thus, I know that to many people, and perhaps to you, Gordy, it will seem very wrong, but it does not to me, and that is the simple truth. Everybody has his own views on such things, I suppose. And, as it would not, on my honor, Gordy, ever have held or wished to hold, or ever will hold, in marriage or out of marriage, any woman who does not love me, so I do not think it is acting as it would resent others acting towards me, to take away from such unhappiness this lady for whom I would die at any minute. I do not mean to say that pity has anything to do with it. I thought so at first, but... I know now that it is all swallowed up in the most mighty feeling I have ever had or ever shall have. I am not a bit afraid of conscience. If God is universal truth, he cannot look hardly upon us for being true to ourselves. And as to people, we shall just hold up our heads. I think that they generally take you at your own valuation. But, anyway, society does not much matter. We shan't want those who don't want us. You may be sure. I hope he will divorce her quickly. There is nobody much to be heard by that except you and Sis. But if he doesn't, it can't be helped. I don't think she has anything but with my 600 and what I can make, even if we have to live abroad. We shall be alright for money. You have been awfully good to me as always, Gordy, and I am very grieved to hurt you. And still more sorry if you think I am being ungrateful. But when one feels as I do, body and soul and spirit, there isn't any question. It wouldn't be if death itself stood in the way. If you receive this, we shall be gone together. I will write to you from wherever we pitch our tent, and of course I shall write to Sicily. But will you please tell Mrs. Dune and Sylvia, and give them my love if they still care to have it. Goodbye, dear Gordy. I believe you would have done the same if you had been I. Always your affectionate, Mark. And all those preparations, he forgot nothing employing every minute of the few hours in a sort of methodic exultation. The last thing before setting out, he took the damp cloths off his bull-man, 
Into the face of the monster there had come of late a hungry, yearning look. The artist in him had done his work the unconscious justice. Against his will he had set down the truth, and, wondering whether he would ever work at it again, he redamped the cloths and wrapped it carefully. He did not go to her village, but to one five or six miles down the river. It was safer, and the row would steady him. Hiring a skiff, he pulled upstream. He traveled very slowly to kill time, keeping under the far bank, and as he pulled, his very heart seemed parched with nervousness. Was it real that he was going to her, or only some fantastic trick of fate, a dream from which he would wake to find himself alone again? He passed the dovecot at last, and kept on till he could round into the backwater and steal up under the cover to the poplar. He arrived a few minutes before eight o'clock, turned the boat round, and waited close beneath the bank, holding to a branch and standing so that he could see the path. If a man could die from logging and anxiety, surely Lennon must have died then. All wind had failed, and the day was fallen into a wonderful still evening. Gnats were dancing in the sparse strips of sunlight that slanted across the dark water. Now that the sun was low, from the fields bereft of workers came the scent of hay and the heavy scent of meadow sweet. The musky odor of the backwater was confused with them into one brooding perfume. No one passed, and sounds were few and far to that wistful listener, for birds did not sing that just there. How still and warm was the air, yet seemed to vibrate against his cheeks as though about to break into flame. That fancy came to him vividly while he stood waiting, a vision of heat simmering in little pale red flames. On the thick reeds, some large, slow, dusky flies were still feeding and now and then a moorhorn a few yards away splashed a little or uttered a sharp, shrill note. When she came, if she did come, they would not stay here in this dark, earthy backwater. He would take her over to the other side, away to the woods. But the minutes passed, and his heart sank. Then it leaped up. Something was coming, in white, with bare head, and something blue or black flung across her arm. It was a she. No one else walked like that. She came very quickly, and he noticed that her hair looked like little wings on either side of her brow, as if her face were a white bird with dark wings, flying to love. Now she was close, so close that he could see her lips parted, and her eyes love-lighted like nothing in the world but darkness wild with dew and starlight. He reached up and lifted her down into the boat, and the scent of some flower pressed against his face seemed to pierce into him and reach his very heart awakening the memory of something past, forgotten. Then, seizing the branches, snapping them in his haste, he dragged the skiff along through the sluggish water, with the gnats dancing in his face. She seemed to know where he was taking her, and neither of them spoke a single word, while he pulled out into the open and over to the far bank. There was but one field between them and the wood, a field of young wheat with a hedge of thorn and alder. And close to that hedge, they set out, their hands clasped. They had nothing to say, yet like children saving up. She had put on her cloak to hide her dress, and its silk swished against the silvery blades of the wheat. What had moved her to put on this blue cloak? Blue of the sky, and flowers of birds' wings, and the black burning blue of the night, the hue of all holy things. And how still it was in the late gleam of the sun. Not one little sound of beast or bird or tree. Not one bee humming, and not much color 
among the starry white hemlocks and globe campion flowers, and the low-flying glamour of the last warm light on the wheat. End of section 36.